Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 3. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enlighten us by your Spirit that we may see here in your word the promised eternal rest that you have given to your people in Jesus Christ. May we not only hear it, may we not only see it, but may we experience it. To Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the working he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. As far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. I don't know if uh, any of you know this, but um, I was once a trained lifeguard. Yep. And I don't know if you have ever gone through lifeguard training, but one of the most interesting things about lifeguard training is that a lot of it has to do with how you go about trying to save someone from drowning who seemingly doesn't want you to save them from drowning. So you come up on someone who's struggling to swim, and they're panicking, they're flailing their arms around, and they can even punch you or kick you or attack you, even though you're trying to save them. So a lot of the techniques that they teach you in lifeguard training are about how to calm that person down, use reassuring words. Sir, ma'am, I'm here to help you. I'm a trained lifeguard. Holds that avoid getting kicked or punched the way you come up behind them and grab them under the arms. Now, it's usually not until that drowning person rests, calms down, that you can then rescue them from their death. Humanity is like that drowning person. We're restless. We are restless because of sin and the fall. And whether nobody wants to admit it, we all know that there's a judgment coming, that we are deserving of death and condemnation. And it makes people panicky. We are restless as Augustine says, until we find our rest in God. And this is exactly what the seventh day of creation points us to. It's the end in the beginning. It's a picture of salvation God had in store for us before sin ever entered the world. It's as Voss says, the great theologian, Eschatology precedes soteriology. The study of in times, in things, comes before the study of salvation. 
and how we are saved. So our theme this morning is the rest of God is found only in Christ. And when I say the rest of God, I'm not saying this is a part of God and the rest of it is over here. I'm saying the rest, resting, the rest of God is found only in Christ. And this is true always, always has been, always will be. And it was true in Genesis. So we have four points this morning. And the four points are, number one, the polemic, which is basically like an apologetic argument. Number two, the principle. The polemic of the Sabbath, the principle of the Sabbath, the promise of the Sabbath, and then the proposal of the Sabbath. So let's look at that first point, the polemic. As we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2, I've talked to you about how the way in which it is written argues against other Mesopotamian ancient Near Eastern religions, ancient Near Eastern understandings of the beginning of the universe. And this is also true of the seventh day. In the ancient Near East, particularly in Mesopotamia, the 7th, 14th, 19th, 21st, and 28th days of each month were regarded by some as unlucky. But the seventh day of the week is not unlucky for the people of God. This is what Genesis 2 is telling us. It is actually the most special day of the week. Sarna says in his commentary, The biblical institutions of the weekly Sabbath is unparalleled in the ancient world. The concept of a seven-day week is unique to Israel. And this seven-day pattern is arguing against the pagan religions of the ancient Near East. Sarna continues, he, he says, The other major unity of time, day, month, and year, are uniformly based on the phases of the moon and the movement of the sun and the calendars of the ancient world are rooted in the seasonal manifestations of nature. Remarkably, the Israelite week has no such linkage, and it's entirely independent of the movement of celestial bodies. The Sabbath, thus, underlines the fundamental idea of Israelite monotheism, that God is holy outside of nature. In other words, the ancient Near East seasons, their understanding of time are all based upon the cyclical movements of God, which is connected to the movement of the stars that they believed were gods. And that's how they understand time. It's cyclical. It goes in circles. One of my most favorite fantasy series is called The Wheel of Time, and that's the concept. The time is a wheel. It goes around in circles. But Israel's understanding of history, based upon the seven days of creation, the six, six days, and then particularly the seventh day of rest, it's linear. It's historical progress marked by a rest at the end, the seventh day. It's time that goes in a line and then completes at some point, that there's an ending. And the rest of the world looks at time like a wheel, going around and around as the stars do. And they may say, well, a golden age is going to come, as it always does. 
but it won't stay. That golden age will come and go, and it will come again, but not endure any longer than it did before. Only the biblical worldview looks at history as linear, with a definite ending point. And the seventh day of creation, the seventh day of rest, points to that. It gives us that structure of history. So that's the polemic, the argument against other worldviews and religions that the author of Genesis is putting before us. But there's also a principle embedded in the seventh day of rest. There are other days of creation where God blessed his creatures, including blessing mankind made in his image and saying, be fruitful and multiply. But only the seventh day, the day itself, was blessed and called holy. Holy means to be set apart. And the day is set apart because of God's rest. It says in verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now this sets up a principle which is rooted in creation itself. The pattern of six days of work and one day of rest, which is carried on throughout world history. The keeping of this pattern creates blessing. The abandoning of this pattern creates destruction. An example of this that I mentioned when we looked at the uh, fourth commandment when we were looking in the evening services at the Heidelberg Catechism, was that in revolutionary France, they decided that they would come up with a better calendar than God, and they changed their calendar to a 10-day calendar, nine days of work and one day of rest. And would you believe it? That society flourished. They got so much more done. Actually, no, that's not what happened. People started committing suicide, depression, Things were not good. Hamilton in his commentary says, nothing in the creation context that is connected with space is called holy. All is well known. The Hebrew verb kadash means to set apart. And by virtue of being sanctified, one day of rest is set apart from six days of activity. It is divine designation alone that marks the seventh day as holy Humanity does not confer sanctity on this day by abstention from work. And Westerman in his commentary says, The sanctification of the Sabbath institutes an order for humankind according to which time is divided into time and holy time. By sanctifying the seventh day, God instituted a polarity between the everyday and the solemn, between days of work and days of rest which was to be determinative for human existence. The principle embedded in this seventh day is that we are created to work for six days, six days of activity, and to rest on one day. And it's interesting because if you think about even the structure of our weeks in America, everybody's working for the weekend. 
It's five days of work typically, two days of relaxation and recreation. And God tells us the principle six days of activity, one day of rest. And that day of rest is not recreation in the sense that we typically think of it today, but it's a holy day of rest. A day of rest which has an intention, a purpose. That that day of resting would be a resting in God. And that leads us to our third point. There's a polemic on the Sabbath. There's a principle embedded in the Sabbath. But there's a promise as well. And this is the stuff that I really enjoy. This is going to be fun getting into this. Can I ask you a question? One maybe you've thought of before. What does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? Haven't you ever read the psalm? He does not slumber or sleep. Why is it that we are told that there's a seventh day, and on that seventh day, God rested from all his work? And the Deuteronomy tells us that on that seventh day, he was refreshed. Did he take a nap? Did he? He meditated, huh? That's a way to think of it. Did he close his eyes? Did he get some sleep? Rather, God, having completed his work of creation, rests as if to say, as James Montgomery Boyce says, this is the destiny of those who are my people, to rest as I rest, to rest in me. One thing that is noticed about the seventh day is that it does not say there was evening and there was morning like the other days say. Now, don't mishear me. The purpose of that is not to fit millions of years into this day to make room for evolutionary theories and modern cosmologies. The seventh day is a never-ending day. Maybe the seventh day went on and on and on, and then the next day that we hear about Adam being in the garden is millions of years late. Forget that. That's not what I'm saying. What is being suggested by this is that the seventh day is unlike the other days because it is a promise of heaven, of eternity, of eternal and consummate fellowship with the triune God. This is why it's important for us to read what the the author of the book of Hebrews says concerning this rest of God in Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, he says... Since the promise of entering his rest, that is God's rest, still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because of those who heard, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed entered that rest, just as God has said, quoting from Psalm 95. I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's God speaking to the Israelites before they entered into the promised land, saying they shall never enter my rest. 
Now what's interesting about that is that if we read, the author of the book of Hebrews connects the rest that God promised the Israelite people as they entered into the promised land with the rest that we read of in Genesis chapter 2. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. There's our quotation. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Let me explain that. Fesco says, the author of Hebrews connects the eschatological rest, the end times rest, the rest of heaven, the rest of the new heavens and the new earth of the believer with the rest that God entered on the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. It means that the seventh day began during the creation week and has yet to end and never will. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary said, when we read that God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, we are to understand that he began to rest then. The fact that he is never said to have completed his rest and resumed his work of creation implies that his rest continues still. That rest is the eternal, heavenly, consummate rest that God extends to the people of God if they would grasp it by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is actually exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 5 when he's criticized by the religious leaders for healing the man born blind on the Sabbath. His response to them was, my father has been working until now and I have been working. What does he mean by this? Bruce says, God's seventh day rest, which began when the creation's work was finished, has never come to an end. It is still in being. The point made by the writer to the Hebrews is that this rest of God is still available for his people to enter and enjoy. It was available to the Israelites as they marched into the promised land. And some of them did not grasp it by faith. And it's available to the Hebrews that he was writing to. The point made by Jesus is different. Jesus says, You charge me with breaking the Sabbath by working on it. But although my father's Sabbath rest, Sabbath, my father's Sabbath rest began when he had completed his work of creation, and it is still going on, he continues to work, and therefore so do I. And this is the important part that I want us to grasp. This is the promise of rest 
that was set out before Adam in what we call the covenant of works. God gave one commandment for Adam in the garden. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the implication that can be derived by good and necessary consequence is that if Adam and Eve had not eaten from that tree, they would have eaten from the tree of life in a consummate way. And they would have entered into an unchangeable state, also known as God's eternal rest. The goal was set out before Adam of what to attain to. This is why Voss says the covenant of works was nothing more than the embodiment of the sabbatical principle. God rested on the seventh day, and when God came to Adam and said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what he was saying to Adam was, if you pass this test, you will enter into the eternal state, the unchangeable blessing and rest that I have made for you, that I have set apart for you. This is important because often when we hear people talk about heaven, when we hear people talk about the future that awaits us, that glorious state, what we often hear people talk about is a return to the Garden of Eden, a return to the paradise that Adam and Eve had. But even in the garden, Adam had something greater to attain by grace. Even Adam and Eve in the garden were to be looking for something better, greater. And that's why the story of the Bible is not from garden to garden. It's from garden to city. The story of the Bible is not from naked back to naked. It's from naked to clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's a progression here. And the seventh day points us to that. Fesco states, Adam's fall, however, did not negate the eschatological, the end goal of the covenant of works. Recall that God did not rewrite the vocation, the job of the first Adam, but sent another to act in Adam's place. God did not change the end goal of the covenant of works, but rather sent another who would faithfully perform the work and enter the rest of the seventh day. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus is called the second Adam who in his entering into human history, his living, his dying, his resurrection and ascension, sat down after completing his work. He kept the covenant of works that Adam did not keep. And he entered into the seventh day rest of God. And he ushered in the beginning of the new creation. Jesus, in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, is the first fruits of the eternal seventh day. He, in our stead, entered into that Sabbath rest.
that began in Genesis chapter 2. And he is our anchor into that Sabbath rest. Commentary continues, just as the Sabbath pointed to the beginning rest of God and the need for the Israelites to enter that rest, so too the Lord's day points to that same rest. And here's the difference. The difference lies in that the work of the second Adam has been accomplished and fulfilled, and the new creation has begun. Hence, the Lord's day is on the first day of the week rather than on the last. This is important because the way we think about our week is important to the way we understand our place in history, redemptive history. In the Old Testament, it was six days of work ending in a day of rest. And the way that we often think about our week still is that way. We come to the end of the week and we get to go to church. But that's actually not the case. Sunday is the first day of the week. Because we have entered into the new creation, we begin our week with rest. And we go to our work. So here's a challenge for you. Begin to think of the Lord's Day as the first day of the week rather than the last because we are a part of the new creation. We are first day people. There's a final point. The proposal. What I mean by proposal is an invitation. It's the one that Augustine gave us. He said to God, we're restless until we find our rest in you. Jesus comes and he says, come to me all who are weary and you will find rest. You see, we're all like that drowning person so panicked by our own guilt before God. We know that we are deserving of punishment and we're, we're flailing around. Until we remember that one has been drowned in our place. We can rest knowing that in Christ we have been forgiven of our sins and have already entered that rest in Him. We who have believed have entered and now experienced the first fruits of the eternal rest we have in Christ. What does the scripture mean when it says the Christ who is seated in heavenly places that we rise up to be with him there but to participate in that rest of God the eternal Sabbath rest of God that began on the seventh day of creation. Yet we still await its consummation in full. We only experience it in part now. And one picture of this rest that we experience now, but we still also await its fullness in the future, we see in the Lord's Supper. 
Just as in the Garden of Eden, God set forth his eternal rest to Adam and said, if you pass, if you have faith in me, if you obey my commandments, you will eat of the tree of life in a way that will enter you into the eternal state. The feast is there in the garden. Just as in the Old Testament, the people of Israel would gather around tables and they would participate in holy feasts. That God would join them in those feasts. And then it was a picture of that eternal rest to come. Just as in the New Testament, Jesus gathered his disciples. And he had supper with them. And he told them of the work that he would do. And just as in the book of Revelation, we look forward and we see that there's an invitation to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The feast is there. And so what we're doing when we participate in the Lord's Supper is we are participating in part in the eternal seventh-day rest of God. We are getting a taste of it. And the only way that we experience it, join in that heavenly banquet, feast, is through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is our Savior, who has himself already entered into holy that rest. And by our union with him, we participate in that rest. And by our faith in him, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. The invitation is the same invitation that Jesus gave. The table set before us here this morning to say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The rest of God that we see here in the seventh day of creation is found only in Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your rest in Jesus Christ, your Son. May we experience that rest. May we abide in it. And may we pray every day, Lord, until we reach that day when we will 
have it in full. The new heavens and the new earth, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we experience perfect fellowship with you for the rest of eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.